Hello and welcome to this festive edition of Plain Talking. As we journey through the season of Christmas and into the new year, we'll hear how one national charity is feeding the hungry at a time of great need. After that, we take a hike into the Welsh hills and find a large group of Ukrainians taking shelter in a celebrated place of worship and prayer. And finally, Brother David Jardine fills us with Christmas hope. Jessica Foster is head of church engagement with the Trussell Trust, whose aim is to end food poverty in the UK. The Trussell Trust also runs a network of food banks across the UK. So I caught up with Jessica and asked her how busy they were likely to be at Christmas time. So as we rapidly approach Christmas, food and hospitality are never far away from our thoughts. Family gatherings, Christmas parties, endless socialising. But for many, it's a time that's fraught with anxiety about money, about food, about just coping with inflation rising, energy bills going up through the roof and the cost of living feeling like it's being squeezed for all of us. Christmas has mixed emotions for many, many people. And so particularly when it comes to food and the anxiety about being able to pay for food, uh, the Christmas meal, things that I guess many of us have taken for granted this year in particular are going to feel even more difficult. Well, I'm joined now by Jessica Foster at the Trussell Trust, who are well known, of course, for their food bank network, but also do a, a great deal of other work as well. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, lovely to meet you. I'm wondering, by the time this podcast goes out, Christmas will will be upon us within a matter of days or so. And I'm assuming you're going to be very busy or food banks across the UK are going to be very busy. And I wonder if you could just tell us what that looks like in terms of how many food parcels, the kind of people who are going to be accessing your services and that kind of thing. Yeah, so I mean, this year, from April to September, which is when we last did our statistics, We provided 1.3 million emergency food parcels, which is the highest number that we've ever provided in a six-month period. And we know that that is growing. Obviously, it's got colder since November and Christmas does put more financial pressure on people. So we're expecting to see that number be even more from September to March next year. We're seeing uh, new people come to food banks. So we've seen in that same period, we saw 320,000 people coming to a food bank for the first time. And that's that's a 40% increase in the number of new people in 2021. So that's a new trend as well. That's people who have never found themselves destitute before, but now cannot afford to put food on the table. And the other big thing we've noticed is that one in five people referred to the food bank are in households where someone is working. And actually, some of our food banks are now having to open to make sure that people can access them um, outside of working hours. So we're expecting really to be giving out about 7,000 emergency food parcels a day in the next six months. And that means that we're having to buy much, much more food than ever. Um, Usually we find that um, a local community will support a food bank with enough food for the donations. And so... Generally, sometimes you have to top up with a few things. But this year, we're finding that each food bank spending an average of £1,400 a month on food. And for some, it's much, much more than that. So it is very difficult. It isn't sustainable. Um, 
you know, the sustainable model is when a community supports a community and the donations match the demand. But we're, we're not in that situation at the moment. And although I think actually donations have risen very slightly, the demand is, you know, this 40% increase is, is a hugely outstripping um, what communities can afford to give. Well, wow, those are staggering numbers you've given us there, Jessica, and, and realising that behind those statistics are our families and people mm. and our layers of desperation and anxiety. You said there that the model, if you like, was a community supporting a community, but that that's becoming unsustainable by the sounds of things, which puts a great demand on presumably the Trussell Trust itself to meet the shortfall. Yeah, so for the first time this year, we ran an emergency appeal when we saw what was coming with the cost of living crisis and the tsunami of need. And so we ran an emergency winter appeal, which is, has the public have been really generous. So it means that there's a kind of national support for national support. So there's a bit more region distribution. And that's meant that we can give our food banks grants to buy food. And again, that's the first time we've ever had to do that. So we've given all our, offered all our food banks a grant to buy food. And we will do that again um, after Christmas if that's what's needed. And obviously, food banks only take it if they need it. We're used to giving food banks grants. We give them grants to uh, run advice, financial inclusion. They have grants for all sorts of other initiatives. But we've never before had to give grants just for food. It's usually for the wraparound support, the additional things, the, the work that food banks do on top of their kind of basic giving food, supporting people, making sure people actually don't go hungry. Well, Jessica, you mentioned earlier as well that part of your own role sounds like a, a key relationship for the Trustle Trust and local food banks is the relationship with, with churches, with local churches. So I wonder how, as Christmas is upon us and churches do all kinds of wonderful things in their communities this time of the year, how can churches get more involved with food bank? How does that so like? there are lots of food banks that aren't Trust or Trust as well. So we we would always say find your nearest food bank. Doesn't matter if it's us. And it's great to support. I mean, at the moment, ask people what they need because there may well be that they are short of food and toiletries. Uh, some of our food banks used to do hampers and gifts and stuff at Christmas, and some of them aren't able to because they're so pushed. And we would love it if churches could take that on and maybe commit to, to buying some presents or wrapping up presents or doing additional the kind of food that might make Christmas just a little bit more of a celebration for people. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, the first thing we would say is contact your food bank. Secondly, pray. We really believe that prayer works. We don't know how. I certainly don't know how. But prayer is important to many, many people in our network. Um, to know that they have press support is really important. Um, if you can obviously support our emergency appeal with a, a Christmas collection or something, then that allows us to distribute to food banks, which is really, really helpful. But talk about it as well, I think, in your churches. So there are people in churches who are facing a financial hardship, but I've you know, worked in church. Um, it's a very, can be a place where we don't talk about that stuff. You know, we put on our kind of Sunday best and we, we are all successful and uh, got it all together. But actually, if we normalise financial difficulties, just as any other difficulties that all should be normal in church and should be talked about, people might be able to ask for what they need. You might know that there is someone in your church that can't afford to buy a roast dinner on Christmas Day and someone could buy them a turkey. You know, that, that kind of community support could stop someone needing to go to a food bank. So, yeah, and being careful how we ask for money as well. I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious in churches I've been that we're always raising money for something. How does that feel if you're in church and you, you don't have spare money? So we're really passionate about churches being places where people facing financial hardship, people needing to use a food bank, 
would be very welcome, but not more than welcome, more than kind of you can come here if you like, but actually have agency, have voice where their stories are heard and, and normalised and the, the stigma is reduced because there's a huge stigma to needing to use a food bank. People really don't want to be seen queuing for a food bank or entering a food bank. So we think churches can change the narrative and get rid of the kind of undeserving poor narratives and all those kind of myths and actually be places where people can come and can share their story and be heard with compassion. And churches can model a different way of living that is about sharing. You know, the stories in the Bible are way beyond uh, how I live for sure. You know, the Acts stories of, of people having all in common. But we can start, we can make a move towards that in churches. And churches should be a place where people are valued for who they are, not what they have and what they can buy. Uh, one of the reasons people end up in poverty is that after a um, breakup of a marriage or the loss of a job, people try and safeguard their social status. So they try and live at the level they've lived before mm. because they feel that's important to keep their friendship. Well, a lot of our friendships are built on an equal economic platform. You know, we, we can go to the same restaurants or we can afford the same number of nights out. And so if you suddenly find yourself without money, you're trying to kind of keep that level you know, your kids, the same level of Christmas presents. There's a huge pressure. And I think churches could be a place where that pressure is actually talked about and mm. and subverted, where people mm. aren't valued for because they can afford the latest fancy restaurant or they can afford to go to the theatre. Actually, we find ways of socialising that aren't stigmatising, but bring equality and bring community to people who who can't afford lots of money on on those kind of events. Earlier this year, the UK government launched its Homes for Ukraine programme, helping Ukrainians fleeing war find shelter and hospitality in the UK. I asked the Reverend Nan Powell Davis from the Presbyterian Church of Wales how they helped out. Well, I'm delighted to be joined now by the Reverend Nan Powell Davis, who is the General Secretary of the Presbyterian Church of Wales, who have recently got involved with the very exciting Homes for Ukraine project and used one of their amazing and iconic buildings up in mid Wales. So welcome, Nan, to the podcast. Thank you very much, Gethin. It's good to join you today. Nan, before we get on to how you got involved with so many Ukrainian families, I wonder if you could explain to us what the Homes for Ukraine project was that you responded to. Well, to be honest with you, Gethin, uh, we had a phone call, I think it was the 16th of March, from Katyn uh, Churches Together in Wales, just asking, uh, you've got 24 hours to decide, or you've got, I think it was even less than 24 hours, if you are going to use your centre in um, Trevecca to welcome people from Ukraine. And of course, it was right at the beginning of, of the war uh, and the crisis. And, you know, there was this kind of panic in our midst that everybody wanted to be as hospital as possible. And, and it was a kind of, we are able, so let's let's do it. Let's, let's go for it. 
and we responded and we got in contact that very afternoon. Somebody from Welsh government then contacted me and uh, and we made it to be possible. And the trustees of Trevecca and the, the managers at the time, Meyer and Richard, they also pulled all the stops out. And within 24 hours of being informed, we were already set up as an emergency centre so anybody that arrived uh, within the UK, well, within Wales to the ports, we were ready uh, to be that place of refuge that people needed to make the, the work possible. But eventually, how many people did come? In, in total, we had 33 people and they were from all walks of life. It took time initially to, to fill Trevecca up and the capacity was 28 but actually, for the five months, we, we reached the capacity for four months out of the five months that we, we accommodated. Uh, this is always um, something that was emphasised by the council, Powys uh, Council, and also by the government, that the status were not, they weren't refugees, but they were our visitors. And I've held very dearly to that because when you have visitors... I'll be having visitors, hopefully, for supper here tonight. Well, it's not sausage or mince, is it? It's, you know, the best steak you can buy and it's the best wine um, that you can afford and whatever it might be. Uh, and it was, I and, and that was my, my prayer and my desire was that they were our visitors and we treated them as our very special and dear visitors. And I think that certainly uh, was something we were able to do and something that we feel, um, I'm not going to use the word proud, but we, we, we feel very cherished that we've been able to do. Mm. Well, the months have gone by, Nan, and I think now the visitors have dispersed, they've left, and uh, Powers County Council have taken responsibility now for them. So, I mean, do you know where they've gone? Have they gone... Locally or further afield or back to Ukraine? Yes, yes. Well, I think you've answered your own question. <laughs> you know, they've 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 gone to various places. Some of them um, are, are living locally. Some of them have gone further afield to bigger cities within the UK, and one or two have actually gone home as well. So they, they are, and, and that was always what the intention was to equip people. And I must say that we, we worked very closely and very happily with the county council. And that was the intention of making sure that these individuals were able to, to have their dignity and to stand on their own uh, two feet and to flourish as individuals and in some cases as families as well. So the end goal was met. And for that, I'm very, very grateful as well. And Nan, you mentioned there several times somewhere called Treveca. So some people listening to this might have an idea where that is or what it is, but assume we know nothing. Nan, what is Treveca? First of all, Treveca, it's a little hamlet in Powys, right in the middle of the Brecon Beacons. It is an extremely beautiful old hamlet and it was the home of one of our forefathers as the Presbyterian Church of Wales who was Howell Harris. Now, Howell Harris had, in one sense, uh, uh, with the, he called it the family of Trevecca. 
And the family of Trevecca really was a commune of, of Christians living together, working together and uh, praying together and worshipping together. And that family then, of course, Noel Harris was one of the greatest preachers Wales has ever heard. And many, many souls were saved through his preaching. But the legacy of the family of Trevecca remains. And of course, um, that family had a, a very deep influence. Out of his desire, he was actually saved in an Anglican church in Talgarth and felt the Holy Spirit moving as he was partaking of the Lord's Supper by that communion table. But it was what Harris was able to achieve after that first encounter uh, with his saviour that then this work flourished. And really the, the history of Trevecca had been this family of Trevecca and then it was a lay training centre. And there's always been change in Trevecca. It has never stood still to be the same place for, for years gone by. And this chapter of Trevecca and the, the chapter of Trevecca as a lay training centre actually came to an end with the departure of our last visitors from Ukraine. And we are now in the process of a new beginning that we are extremely excited about, grateful that will be under the leadership of one of our ministers, uh, the Reverend uh, Wayne Adams. And that project hopefully will come to light by uh, April or May next year. Well, we should look forward now and maybe coming back to that uh, that exciting project. I can remember going to staying in Trevecca years and years ago, and there was like a little museum, sort of memorabilia from, because Howell Harris, of course, was a contemporary people like John of the Wesley Brothers, yep. and George Whitfield, and yes. I think George Whitfield's pulpit it's was something there. I saw there. So um, in context, he formed part of this enormous kind of spiritual awakening that took over uh, not just Wales, but Britain and, of course, into America. He was a key figure, wasn't he? Absolutely. You know, as I say, he was one of, of the fathers of the evangelical 18th century revival and that awakening that happened and that longing for the gospel. And really, it's what still stays within the land of Wales um, and I think after the, the, the census that came out last week or the week before, that's the longing that our people has, is that the legacy that um, Harris and, and, and others, Pantakellin after him and so on and so on, Daniel Roland, it, it is that legacy and the tradition that, that came with it that people are longing for in Wales. And of course, there's been a lot of talk about that during the last few days. And rightly so. But yes, it was a it was a huge, huge movement. And when you think of the thousands that used to assemble together in open air to listen to Harris preaching. And of course, Harris himself had a massive burnout because, you know, he, he used to travel up and down the country on horseback. And, you know, I think some kind of we were talking about the museum and the memorabilia of Harris. This, bits about him uh, actually sleeping on his horseback um, <laughs> as he was riding back to Trevecca uh, to be with, with with the family there. I would say that of all the places that we have, as and we, we actually, as a, a Presbyterian Church of Wales, we've got somewhere around 950 buildings. Some of them are manses, some of them are, are of course, church buildings and centres. We have a centre in Bala and the centre, of course, in Trevecca. Out of all our buildings, 
I would actually put my head on the block as general secretary and say, <laughs> Sheveka is the most important of all our buildings. Wow, we heard it here first now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Use it widely. Go and tell the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, thanks so much for joining us today. And, um, you know, with Christmas coming up only leaves me to wish you a happy Christmas and an adolic Cowan, of course, as we say. In and the same to you as well, uh, Gethin. Have a wonderful and blessed Christmas. And finally, Brother David Jardine reflects on his life and finding the Christ child in it all. Although it is almost 50 years since I joined the Society of St. Francis, I can well remember the day that I entered the community. It was the 13th of September, 1973. I flew from Belfast to Exeter and then took the train to Sherbourne. A brother of the society met me at the station and took me the 10 miles out to the friary in the middle of the Dorset countryside. I was 30 years of age and this was a completely new lifestyle for me. Up until then, for the previous six years, I had been a Church of Ireland clergyman. I had received a salary and had a great deal of freedom in where I decided to go. Now I was living under vows of poverty, chastity and obedience. I didn't receive any salary. Indeed, I was in the society for 12 years, living in New York, before I received a small weekly allowance for expenses. I was also living under a vow of chastity, committing myself to remain unmarried in order to serve God and people in a way that would have been much more difficult for a family man. Our movements at the Friary were also pretty restricted, but there were great spiritual compensations. Built into our daily program were three hours of prayer and worship. I would say today that most of my spiritual development is due to the devotional life of the Society of St. Francis. We began each morning with morning prayer at 6.45, followed by half an hour of private prayer. Services and prayer times were then interspersed throughout the day. Our lifestyle was very simple, and right at the very centre of everything was the devotional life. It was a great privilege to have all those prayer times built into your daily programme. This was particularly noticeable at Christmas. 1973 was the first time in my life that I had spent Christmas apart from my family. But it was a great time at the Friary. Worship was right at the very centre of the festival. All of the services were based on the Christmas theme. And it was a great thing to sing again all those traditional Christmas hymns. One of my favourites is, O little town of Bethlehem. How still we see thee lie, above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And of course there were so many Bible readings in the course of the festival that your favourite Christmas verses were almost bound to come up maybe on a number of occasions. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has come to his people and set them free. He has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of the house of his servant David. He shall be called Emmanuel, a name which means God with us. And possibly my favorite, when John tells us that when Jesus came, a light has come into the world and the darkness has never extinguished it. That verse meant a lot to me in the dark days in Northern Ireland when we wondered if violence would ever end. So at Christmas, things were different at the Friary. People had given gifts, especially chocolate and wine. Lots of visitors came to stay with us. We even were given a couple of days off work. But through all this, right at the very center of everything was worship and prayer. The festival was established to celebrate the birth of a baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And at the Friary, we maintained that emphasis, giving Jesus his rightful place. That is a tradition which Christians need to preserve every other day of the year. I find when I practice that, giving Jesus his rightful place, life goes far better and I am much more at peace. Thanks for listening to this edition of Plain Talking. Hope you enjoyed it. The next podcast will be out in the new year, so watch out for it. Plain Talking is sponsored by The Plain Truth, a magazine of understanding. For more information, please visit plain-truth.org.uk. And if you like it, please leave a review wherever you pick up this podcast. Well, that's it for now. So from all of us at Plain Talking, to all of you, we wish you a joyous Christmas and a hopeful new year. God bless. Bye-bye.